Hey everybody, this month I'm bringing you the final four installments of my interview series with esteemed author and consciousness leader, Betty J. Kovach, Ph.D. We'll be discussing the final section of her destined-to-be-a-classic book, Merchants of Light, the Consciousness that is Changing the World. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are a serious spiritual seeker, this book belongs on your shelf. And if you're listening to this podcast, you are likely a bearer of light yourself. And the information Betty shares in this series, especially the final two episodes, should give you some hope. Though the outlook may look bleak, the coming of the light cannot be stopped. You are, we are, the merchants of light returned once more to illuminate the darkness. Welcome to Evolving Humans. I'm your host, Julia Marie, and this podcast is for visionary people like you who are exploring the true nature of reality and want to contribute to the global awakening. You seek to deepen the connection to your multidimensional self so that you can live a more conscious life. Today I continue my conversation about Merchants of Light, the consciousness that is changing the planet with well-known author and consciousness researcher Betty J. Kovach, Ph.D. But first, I want to thank all of you for your continued support of Evolving Humans with your shares, ratings, and reviews. If you're interested in learning more about why humanity is on this planet and where we are in the collective process of rediscovering our natural, inborn connection to the divine, Listen up as we take a look at the five waves of remembering. Betty calls them waves of renaissance, which means rebirth or new birth. Betty Kovach taught literature, writing, and symbolic mythic language for 25 years. After her retirement from teaching, she began an intense period of research into our ancient ancestors' direct experience of the vaster consciousness of which we are all a part. The results of her research, blended with her life experience, are beautifully presented in her latest award-winning book, Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World. Once again, I want to express my gratitude to you for this incredible book, Betty, and welcome once more to Evolving Humans. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. As I reread the last section of the book, in preparation for this interview today, I almost had a sense of an image of an ocean of consciousness with waves coming in and out on a shore that would be our limited human consciousness. Mm. And each wave would roll in and then recede and then come back and go a little bit higher and then recede out. So I don't know if that's an appropriate image to have, but when I reread that whole section... That's what I came away with. Well, yes. While you were talking about it, I was just imagining it. It seems to me that the first wave was was maybe the most powerful one, but there was a continued growth, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. So I think we probably can look at it in that way. It was just some of the most important seeds were in the first one, but they uh-huh. were developed more and more. And today, it certainly is the largest wave, for sure. The first wave that you talk about was the High Middle Ages. 
So what was the central theme of that particular wave, and how does the legend of the Holy Grail fit into all of that? Yes. Well, the theme of that first wave was the centrality of the heart to higher consciousness. And the major image was the divine feminine, Our Lady. Um, She was actually the grail because she is soul. And the most important thing of that period was the understanding that we aren't complete unless we have opened ourselves to the divine wisdom, the queen of heaven, wisdom, soul, heart. And they really, really, some of the nuns, sisters and monks and nuns and the Begin women, there were many mystics among them. And so many others were actually developing consciously this centrality of the heart and how it actually could be developed in a way that it took its place in the heart of the earth so that it was could actually merge with the heart of the earth. So this was a, a powerful, mystical uh, renaissance in understanding that what had been censored by the church for 700 years since the Roman church took over in the 4th century, the later part of the 4th century, and they the church had censored everything. No one could think of even think of anything else other than the church doctrine. They did indeed murder people, destroyed all kinds of texts and temples and mystery schools, and it anyone who had any book that was different from the orthodox position was in danger or certainly couldn't say anything. So here were 700 years of very severe suppression of the feminine. And not only was it the feminine, the divine feminine, the soul, the heart, it was the woman herself, the actual female being was censored. Mm -hmm. So when uh, this renaissance, this awakening emerged uh, in Europe, it was powerful. It just, even men began to wear more uh, feminine clothing. They changed the game of chess to include the feminine more prominently. And everything was about the female, the grail, the search for the holy grail, which is the heart, it is the soul, and it is symbolized in the feminine being. And so when the Knights of King Arthur's Round Table had the vision of the grail at the center of the table, they all, of course, streaked out into the forest on their own individual path, because the forest in this case is a labyrinth. Each one takes his own journey into that labyrinth, the labyrinthine forest, and all of the events that occur to that night are particularly for him, just as whatever events occur in our labyrinthine journey are events that are helping us to see ourselves more fully and grow and develop. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this was uh, this was just pervasive. All Europe was put was just ignited with this particular Grail legend because it was something that had been dormant for so many hundreds of years. And now it was what that longing of the soul brought forth in these images. It was a very, very powerful time. And would you say that it was the collective soul's yearning that activated that dormant seed again? That just came to me to ask you. Oh, no, I think it's exactly the right question. Yes, I would say so. There were things that helped to ignite it. First of all, you know, when the, when the soul has been really 
not allowed to express itself in its own true voice, uh, there is going to be, build up gradually that longing because the psyche knows what's missing. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I think individual psyches, the collective psyche, they mm-hmm. longed for something that the church could not give them. Although Jesus very often did take on a very feminine quality yes. to help to 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 feed that that soul longing. And certainly he was an image of soul as well. Uh, but there were other reasons. Uh, all to the south of Europe, all the way up to Spain, Cordova and Spain, this brilliant, highly developed Arabic culture, which really did develop beautifully. That's something that in history, we're usually not taught. Mm-hmm. But in Cordova, the Muslims, the Jews, the Christians work together. And people throughout Europe who wanted to know and could travel went to Cordova to learn to be in this atmosphere. So it was the Arabic culture that really helped to ignite that incredible longing within the human heart that just exploded then. And coming from the more west west of of Europe in in the UK in Wales in Brittany were these stories that as they were told they were developed actually to fulfill that longing and so here was this young man Parsifal who mm-hmm. knew nothing he was so naive and I'm so grateful for that because you know I feel we start out very often we don't know anything but we have to have the courage to show up even though we're ignorant perhaps. And uh, just like in one dream, when I went to visit Jung and he invited me in and I flew in on my belly, I tripped as I went in. Well, that's okay. I showed up and Parsifal showed up. So he was the young man who knew nothing, but he wanted to know. And I think it's a wonderful symbol of of many at that period of time and many of us today when we start on our journey. So there were stories then of King Arthur and the knights coming from that area of Wales and Brittany and Wales flooding into Europe. And of course, as the troubadours took these stories and sang them in all of the major courts of Europe, they, of course, the stories grew and developed. And as the psyche was able to take this in, then the stories developed even more. And so it really put Europe on fire for uh, something, this longing that was symbolized in the feminine and in the Holy Grail and in the journey itself to discover that. And it's interesting that's all juxtaposed against the church not wanting that to happen. Oh, absolutely. That it is the one thing that the church did not want to happen. And anyone who had an inner experience, Gnosis, the Gnostics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Gnostics has another dimension too, to people who had experiences, and maybe we don't agree with the conclusions they drew, but gnosis itself means we have our own inner experience. And the church called those people heretics, Mm -hmm. and they were the enemies of the church. So anything that even suggested your own inner experience made the church cautious and very against it. And of course, this was exactly what they had denied all those 700 years. And every one of the Renaissance periods, of course, is about Gnosis, Mm -hmm. because that's what we're about, is knowing and experiencing these higher levels of consciousness that we are born with, but we have to ignite. It's part of our evolution that, you know, just like we learn to walk and speak once we're born, we have to learn how to open these 
higher brain centers, but that's not what the church wanted. And I don't know whether the the church fathers really understood what we are capable of. Just like I think today, many of the technocrats who want to merge us with machine have no idea that we have the potential for far more than that. Mm -hmm. Not just intellectual knowledge, but for that inner wisdom development. I read that whole section kind of in one sitting, and there's a parallel between, or I guess a resonance or an echo, I don't know how I would describe it, between this first wave is all about the heart, and there's a lot of that in the consciousness movement today is all about moving into the heart center. So we're reigniting that strand again about trying to get people to turn inward and pay attention to their inner guidance. Yes, and all of the shaman mystic traditions of our ancestors were always heart-centered. They knew that. And, you know, the pictures of Jesus are with the heart that's radiant. So he, too, was a mystic, and he knew that the heart is the central core, really, of of consciousness. And now we have the science to back that up with heart math has done incredible uh, scientific studies on the heart and the centrality of the heart and and in reducing aggression and improving our ability to even learn intellectually, mm-hmm. never mind our ability to open to love and feeling how we feel about it. The ancient Egyptians knew that without feeling, that ability to feel what we are living and thinking, that they would say civilization cannot continue to Mm -hmm. unfold. Well, what did we do in modern culture is that, you know, forget your feelings. I'm not interested in that. What are the facts? What are the intellectual facts? I don't care how you feel. Well, feeling is a way of knowing and understanding, but we just lost that. So with heart math, Uh, Here is a scientific understanding now that consciousness is centered in the heart, that the heart is the fifth brain component Mm -hmm. and gives more to the brain than the brain gives to it, and that it is in a torus shape. It goes out many feet from us, this energy of the heart. And when we embrace someone, these torus energy systems are merging Mm -hmm. or sit next to someone. I mean, we are, we have such an incredible inner power that can be used so creatively. We've just been told century after century, you're nothing. You're flawed. You know, you're a sinner. And uh, whether we believed it or not, it affected us. That's the science that we have. And of course, quantum physics is another aspect of science in this fifth wave that supports other dimensions of reality. Because we've been told for centuries that there's nothing but matter. Well, quantum physics says, no, this is not true. There are other dimensions. One of the other things that fascinated me about the whole first wave was how the cathedrals were, there were so many of them in Europe that were built in honor of Our Lady. Yes, this is the most amazing thing. I don't remember the exact number now, but hundreds yes. of Temples and cathedrals were built, and they were built really relatively quickly. And there were, I don't know whether there were six major cathedrals built to Our Lady in France, and they were built, one monk tells us, on the land 
in the same position of the stars in Virgo, the Virgin. Mm -hmm. This would be understandable because in Egypt, for example, you know, above as below the Hermetic text. And so it would be natural to build on the land something that matched the position of, of stars in the heavens. It's just amazing how these were built. And with the the glass, the beautiful stained glass, no one was ever able to make the stained glass like that after those cathedrals were built. People say these were alchemists who worked on the stained glass. It's a bringing spirit into the glass, and they just simply disappeared mm-hmm. after that. No one could ever repeat or replicate that. And we're also told Fulcanelli wrote about the temples themselves are like an alembic, an alchemical vessel, so that when you go in, it's designed architecturally to ignite your own spirit. That in the ancient tradition, a church is never just built. You know, Mm -hmm. it's structured always according to certain uh, star structures. And then those energies flood into the cathedral, and the cathedral is architecturally shaped to receive those and ignite the individual. That's beautiful, I think. When I was a child, about 12, I had the opportunity, actually, very totally unconscious at the time, of course, I had the privilege of visiting Notre Dame, the cathedral at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And even without understanding what it was I was experiencing, I could feel the holiness of the place when I went inside. And so I just remember light coming in through the stained glass mm-hmm. and being mm-hmm. almost physically affected by the, oh, that's great. without understanding that I was probably being <laughs> ignited in some way. In some way, yeah. yes. And certainly uh, these churches were built by people who weren't probably a part of the Roman church. The Knights Templar could have been in charge of the building, and the people in the community all wanted it and worked on it and wanted uh, funds to go to that cathedral to Our Lady. We just don't know. We don't know exactly what it was. But I've often felt that those churches, those cathedrals, even those built by the Roman church, were you could go into them. I remember in Europe, you could go into them and the candles would be lit mm-hmm. or if music played and you would be there. There was That was a beautiful place. And I commend the Roman church for having these temples and spaces for people to go to experience something in the inner world. And it was usually attached to the image of Jesus, which is also good because mm-hmm. he is an image of soul. That must be said as a real plus for the church that these places existed better than the square boxes of many Protestant churches. Yeah. You know, uh, I can remember as a child, I had an uncle, and a wonderful uncle. I loved him, but he was a minister of a very conservative church. There were no music and no art. The women didn't wear makeup, which is fine. But I mean, we we need art. We need beauty because there's such beauty in the world. But I can remember thinking it was hard to feel anything in those places. The difference between the modern boxes we have and a cathedral like Notre Dame, there isn't anything to compare to. <laughs> there really isn't. Yeah, because I it, that's been, you know, 50 years, and I still 
still can remember. feel it. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, also, there were labyrinths in those cathedrals of the high Middle Ages. Quite a few. I don't remember the number because I only was aware of the one in Chartres. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in but there were many. But they were later destroyed, or even in Chartres for years, they just put chairs over it. They mm-hmm. it's that. But the labyrinth is an image of our journey toward higher consciousness, the great self. And I heard someone speak about Chartres and say that the stones in the labyrinth are the same number that a child is in the womb. This is your second birth. Oh wow! <laughs> I didn't. I had not known that. Mm-mm. And so, and I probably mentioned this before. Kerényi, who was a classical scholar, Hungarian-born classical scholar, had said that the labyrinth is, you know, that's our journey. We to our higher consciousness, we go round and round and down and down into the depth of depth of who we are. We, there we confront. Divine consciousness, the all, not as other, but as self. Mm-hmm. And in the cathedral at Chartres, once you are standing in that center, you look up and you see the rose window, and Mary is holding the child. So it's the birth of the child, the birth of higher consciousness, that is the point. Not just that Mary had a child, Jesus. No, he is symbolic of the birth of ourselves. So when we get to that center stone in the labyrinth and look up, we see the birth of the Holy Child, ourselves. And that rose window is the same size as uh, the labyrinth. Wow. I didn't know it's, that. I didn't either. It's uh, There are just so many little details. But you know, in in the ancient world, the builders, they were called the ancient builders, it was an initiated group of people who, they say in Egypt, they were initiated into the uh, mysteries of birth, death, and rebirth, of death and rebirth. And I think they've existed before Egypt. I think they were Mm -hmm. the ones who built the megaliths and the megalithic structures all over the world who are so in tune with the harmony and laws of nature mm-hmm. think that they these builders were initiates who built these cathedrals. I, I would tend to agree with you because, because of what you said about how they're built, oriented in certain directions, and a lot of them on prior sacred sites. Yes, the Christians were wise about that. They knew that there are certain places in the world where the earth energies are conducive uh, to igniting. So the earth itself is working uh, with the architectural structure to ignite Mm -hmm. something in us. And you know, before the Christians were there, uh, the Druids were there, and they also spoke about this land as being sacred land where energies in the earth come together. And they said, a sacred child will be born here. They foresaw, in my opinion, that we are capable of the rebirth of ourselves, the Christ in us. So it's considered for centuries as a sacred spot. Well, since the beginning of my own awakening 30 years ago, they basically told me that Jesus was simply a three-dimensional model of my own potential as a human being, and that I was to look at his life as an example or a model of my own potential. Yes, to become that Christ. Yes, yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. 
and that the that. second coming is actually the ignition of the Christ within the collective, oh, not the, just an individual spark. So exactly, yeah. it's within. Mm-hmm. It's within us. That's what was the point in the very beginning, but the church distorted that. And then we found that there were texts used in early Christianity, found at Nag Hammadi in Egypt. Those texts make it clear, mm-hmm. you must become the Christ. That's what it was all about, mm-hmm. not someone outside us. Because if someone came today that was a Christ figure, it's not going to really affect us until we ignite it within ourselves. Then we're totally transformed. But someone outside us can't do it. Well, the the model of Christ being the Savior, and it's all on Him, and therefore I don't have any personal responsibility for my own evolution, never sat well with me, even as a small <laughs> child. Is, is, what's wrong with this picture? Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. And yes, for sure is, how could someone dying be good for me? Mm-hmm. How could that save me? You know, some of these things that we're told to believe are so lacking, not only in in left brain rationality, but in symbolic reality. Yep. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that uh, philosopher a minute ago. I forgot how you pronounce his name, but he, he was talking about Chart and he said how it was a healing center too. Oh, Fulcanelli. Yes. A, a very interesting person. We don't know too much about him, at least I don't, uh, kind of a secretive person. But he wrote a book about the cathedral as alchemical vessel. Mm-hmm. One can get his book on that. You know, I think that other people have said that, that it's itself, the whole structure is architecturally and earth energy into a certain way that we experience, mm-hmm. just like the ancient Egyptian. I never had the opportunity to go to that particular one. But I didn't either. Yeah. I haven't either. I did go to Europe to study many, many years ago when I was very young, and I saw many cathedrals, but I didn't know anything then, you know. Me neither. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, and so, I wanted to say that what happens in those cathedrals, that the consciousness that transforms us, and when we get in the center of the labyrinth, the mysteries there at, at Chartres were called the Mary Mysteries. The higher self was Mary, and that's what they were focused on at Chart. I didn't know that either. We've come to the end of our time today. Next week, we'll continue our discussion of the five waves by examining the second, third, and fourth waves. To connect with Betty and her work, please visit the Comlock Center's website, www.kamlak.com. Her message is both simple and profound. We are awakening to the divine game. Thank you for continuing to listen and support Evolving Humans. If I receive enough listener questions, I'll create a bonus episode for your summer listening experience.